You are listening to Conversations with Chris Marshall, where I sit down and talk to top real estate investors and professionals who work with investors to find out how to become a top investor. If you are interested in becoming a top real estate investor, then be sure to subscribe to the show and to tune in to new episodes so we can level up and start or scale to success in real estate investing. Welcome back to another episode of the Top Investor Podcast. Thank you all for tuning in and being here. Uh, Normally, I have these all edited and ready to go on Sunday night. And then on Monday morning, I will record this little opener uh, right before I publish the episode. And well, uh, if you're paying attention, uh, this is coming out on a Tuesday. Um, I'm just now recording this episode opener this morning. Uh, I've been in bed sick for the last couple days, and uh, so I did not get this ready in time. So thank you for bearing with me and being patient and tuning tuning in. Um, I'm ready to get back to work and and get back into the grind of things. Um, Today's episode is with Jonathan Nichols. Jonathan is a multifamily syndicator And he's been on the general partner side and on the sponsor side. So uh, some great insight around syndications, how they work, things to look out for if you're trying to get started in them. Uh, We break down how to get started in them and all that stuff, all the stuff to look out for, things to pay attention to, whether you want to be a general partner or a a sponsor on the deal. Um, So definitely a great listen. If you have any more questions, um, Jonathan shares how to get in touch with him at the end of the episode. So yeah, if uh, there's any more, without any further ado, let me just get out of the way. I'm still getting uh, my mind cleared up from being sick, so um, I should probably stop talking now. Anyways, have a great day and enjoy the episode. Jonathan, thank you so much for being on the show today. How are you doing? Doing well, Chris. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Awesome. Cool. Uh, Let's go ahead and just dive right into the episode. Who are you? How'd you get started in real estate investing? Where are you kind of at now? Yeah, absolutely. So my background is I moved to the Dallas-Fort Worth area about 10 years ago, uh, immediately after I graduated from university to work as an engineer for a local aerospace company. And um, I married my wife about a little over six years ago. And as soon as we got married, she told me one day that we needed to have a hobby together. And so, you know, I was kind of like, well, what are we going to do? Like, I'm not really the the golfing type, you know? So, um, you know, it kind of was a debate, Hey, what are we going to try to do? And one day I picked up the book, rich dad, poor dad, like I'm sure many of your you know, listeners have gotten their start in real estate investing with, and, you know, that's what gave us the spark to start thinking about investing. We said, Hey, what if we had a hobby that, you know, paid us instead of, um, instead of, you know, required us to pay for it. And so, you know, our original idea was just to buy one single family home and, um, rent it. We wound up as our first investment, actually house hacking a fourplex, which we turned into short-term rentals uh, by the AT&T Stadium here in Arlington, where we live. And then we just kept buying properties, buying properties one by one. And then eventually about three years ago, we got interested in multifamily investing. So, you know, large-scale apartment complexes. And so um, we started a company called Apogee Capital, which syndicates large multifamily deals for investors to um, participate in. And we've been doing that for about three years now. 
Um, I started doing it full time right at two years ago. And my wife, Paula, started doing it with me full time about six months ago. So um, that's the story in a nutshell. Happy to jump into any yeah. part of it with more detail, though. Awesome. So six years ago, you house hacked into a fourplex doing short term rental. Was Airbnb out then? I, I don't I don't I feel like I got introduced to Airbnb like two years ago, but that was like in the middle of COVID. Yeah. They definitely wouldn't have been able to survive. If that's when they started. What, how, what were yeah. you doing in the early days of that? So, you know, I think that they, I don't remember exactly when their company started, but let's say 15 years ago, it was something like that. And yeah. so, you know, I started in it five or six ago. So really I was a late comer to it. You know, they've been going a decade wow. before I ever got involved in it. Um, and yeah, you know what really happened, if if I'm completely honest, is we we house hacked this fourplex. And so I'm the engineer of the family. So I ran all the numbers on it. You know, this is what our mortgage is going to cost. This is what the insurance is going to cost. You know, this is how much vacancy we can expect to have. These are what our repairs are going to be. Well, long story short, the property had been so poorly managed that there was a lot of deferred maintenance on it. And so we got into it. And instead of cash flowing positive two or three hundred a month, we were actually negative cash flow of a couple of hundred a month, which, you know, we weren't going to go bankrupt over that or anything, but it was kind of discouraging when the whole point for getting in the business was to make money. Right. Yeah. And um, so that's what got the wheels turning of like, what could we do differently to turn this into a success? And uh, we had dabbled a little bit with short term rentals and just learning about it and stuff. And so we said, Hey, let's just turn one unit into it. Um, because this property sits about two blocks from, from the stadiums in Arlington. And so, cool. yeah, we tried one and needless to say, it took off and did extremely yeah. well. And so from there, it was just a question of how quickly can we turn the other ones over to that? Yeah. Are you still doing any short-term rental stuff today? We do. So we don't really, we kind of see that as like our cash flow business that pays the bills and all that. Yeah. Um, Cause as you know, multifamily is a little more long-term wealth building it's an investment right um yeah. especially as a general partner um and so yeah we still we actually own 19 total um units in that area that we do short-term rental with but um i see it as like i call it my four-hour work week job so if any of your you know listeners yeah, have read absolutely. the four-hour work week so you know we have a manager that works on it we have cleaners a handy person etc and so you know we do have to work on it a little bit each week but we try to keep it to like a four-hour work week and so um, yeah, we still do have the business, not really planning to sell it right now. Um, and it's doing well. That's cool. That's cool. Um, have you seen much change in the six years since you've been operating those? Yeah. So it's been a roller coaster, right? Because we would have started, let's call it a year or so before COVID hit. Mm -hmm. Um, and we, you know, we kind of had our skis up underneath us, you know, when we were starting out doing well. And then all of a sudden, you know, COVID shut everything down and we lost three months worth of reservations. Uh, at that time, we had four units on every one of the four units, right, wow. overnight, which was the equivalent of about $30,000 to give you an idea. Um, and I mean, that's a lot of money anytime, but especially then it was like, this could be rough. Um, and so well, yeah, we be had to a, what, at least a fourth yeah. of your, your projected revenue. Exactly. Yeah. Ex exactly. And it's like, what do we do? You know, Airbnb unilaterally decided, hey, we're going to give all the money back to the guests. Um, right or wrong, that's what they did. So yeah. um, we pivoted and we started looking for more like long term people, you know, like traveling nurses, construction workers, basically at that time, you know, essential 
what they call it, essential workers or essential employees. Um, And so that was our strategy there for the better part of 2020. Um, And then what was interesting, what I also think no one expected was after the pandemic, because it ended a lot sooner here in Texas, just in terms of how quickly people were willing to go back into normal life. Yeah. Um, there was a flood of travelers. So it went exactly the opposite direction and we made really good money on it coming out of COVID. And then now here the last year, it's kind of, it's doing well, but slower yeah. compared to what it was because the economy's not as good. So people don't have as much money to travel and such, but That's overall we're still doing really well. Too. Yeah. We're, we're seeing pretty similar trends here in Florida. I'm not a short-term rental operator, but I've talked to a few and they're saying the same sure. things They're I think one of them told me that they're probably down about, 15 to 20% um, okay. in, in occupancy rates uh, from where they're normally at. So it's starting to level off, at least in Florida. So Yeah, I would say probably pretty similar here, you know. Cool. Yeah. Now, uh, I do like to ask this when we talk about a couple different things. Do you feel like short-term rentals is more in the investment side or do you feel like it's more in the I'm buying a business side? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so, I mean, the, the truth is anything in real estate is both an investment and a business, right? Like mm-hmm. if I'm buying a single family for short-term rental, the property is an investment, but running it is a business. Or if it's a long-term rental, it's a business. An apartment complex is a business, right? Yeah. Um, and so it's all investing, but it's just each one has a different business that you're running out of it, right? Um, and so you definitely have to look at it that way. And as with any business, each one of them has pros and cons. And so you almost just have to kind of list those out and decide like, which one of these are kind of in my sweet spot or which one of these am I willing to do or put up with or work on? Um, and so that's that's really what it comes down to. So the challenge obviously with short-term rental is um, it's day-to-day, right? Like there's people leaving, going to and from our units every day. And so making sure that the team can handle that stuff real quickly. If something happens, you don't have a lot of response time. It's got to be kind of a snap decision. Whereas like in the apartment world, stuff moves at a slower pace, which is kind of nice as an investor. But if something goes wrong, the consequences are a lot higher because it's a bigger property. And so there's pros and cons to both. Um, But yeah, it is a business for sure. Yeah, cool. All right, I want to move on to the syndication stuff because that's the point where I'm at, and uh, sure. I've been I've been asking a lot of my guests that have syndication experience about it, trying to figure out like where do I fit into the puzzle. I personally, I think I'm leaning towards more of being an LP side, but it sounds okay. like you might be a GP. Is that right? That's that's correct. So I've specifically we've GP'd on six projects, I believe about. So usually in the GP team, you'll have some people that are the lead sponsors. They kind of like find the deal, run the deal. And then you'll have co-sponsors who, you know, will typically raise capital for the deal and perform other like minority type roles, if you will. So I've been the lead sponsor on a few deals and then I've been a co-GP on a few deals. And then a limited partner, which is just an investor who puts money into a deal and has no control or responsibilities um, we've done about seven or eight deals total. So, okay. And what size deals are you, those that you're operating on now? Most of our deals are like, you know, let's call it C plus B assets that are around a hundred units. Okay. And all, all apartment complexes, all apartment complexes. We've done, I've done one, um, 
one storage um, facility as a, a co-sponsor recently. Um, but I don't, you know, on the asset management side or operations side, I don't have as much experience or, or knowledge in that as I do on the multifamily. Gotcha. So when it looks, when when you're looking at this from a GP's standpoint, what comes first when you're like, okay, we're ready for our next acquisition, we're next, our next deal. Where do you start? Are you looking for properties first? Are you looking for co-sponsors and LPs first? Mm. What's the typical process look like? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the first question is really sort of the one you're trying to answer of like, what role do I want to play in the deal? Right. And there's a whole spectrum here. Um, and so, you know, you mentioned being a passive investor. We actually did our first multifamily deals, passive investors. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's definitely an option. But with that, there is limited responsibility and control, which is both a good and a bad thing. Right. Yeah. It means you have lower responsibility, but you also are not going to learn as much or have as much opportunity to contribute. Um, so that's a pro and con. Um, then on the general partnership side, if that's where you're wanting to go, it's kind of like on most of these large projects, it takes a team to get them done, right? You need someone looking for the property, talking to brokers, underwriting, someone raising capital for the deal, maybe multiple people, someone who's very operations oriented and can do the asset management or like the day-to-day oversight on the property manager, Um, you know, maybe construction experience depending on the project and, you know, how involved the rehab is on it. So there's a lot of different roles. And so the first thing is just figuring out like, where's my sweet spot? What can I contribute to the deal? Hmm. Um, Most people, they want to find a deal for their first deal. That's what I wanted to do. I was like, hey, I'm an engineer. I do numbers. I like acquisitions. Um, It's possible, but it's very difficult to do if you've never participated in a multifamily deal for a number of different reasons. And the biggest of which is just you really haven't built up your personal brand or reputation in the industry. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, to get a broker to be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to give you, award you a contract on a 100 unit deal when you've never done one, that can be challenging, not impossible, but very challenging. Um, and so, oftentimes, what I recommend to people is like join as a co GP on a deal that someone else has already found and add other value, which could be raising money for the deal from investors. It could be, you know, helping out with maybe some of the due diligence, signing on the loan. There's several different responsibilities that you could take on, but have more of a minority role, but still an active role on the deal. So what does that typically look like then for for someone starting out? If they're coming in as like a co-sponsor, are they also bringing in capital and like how does that all kind of play out in the math? If we can just look at like a generic, generic deal. Let's say this hundred unit apartment complex is, I don't know, $25 million. And yeah, you know, someplace nice or whatever. Um, well, well, well you, you throw some random numbers out there. Like this will be a random deal. What's like a yeah. random breakdown or like a typical breakdown for easy no, half? Yeah, but that's a great question. So, you know, let's take a, because like I said, a lot of our deals have been about a hundred units and about $10 million. Let's just use that as an example, right? So you're talking about a hundred K a door kind of deals. Um, And so, you know, it used to be when we started on this three-ish years ago, where you'd go do a $10 million deal. And because you could get so much leverage on the deal, two and a half million dollars in equity would get you across the finish line on it. Today, because interest rates are higher, lenders will not 
provide as much proceeds to you for your project in the form of a loan. So mm-hmm. you have to raise more equity from investors, which means now for that same $10 million deal, you probably need to raise like $4 million for it, right? All this high level numbers depends on the rehab you're doing, et cetera, et cetera. And so a lot of the question, it, it really comes down to two things. One, what roles do I need to functionally do the deal? And that includes the things like finding the deal, um, doing the asset management on the deal, managing the rehab, the CapEx on the deal. And then how am I going to raise that $4 million of equity? So on the projects I've participated in, typically everyone is raising money. And then they also will have varying levels, but all active roles on the deal. Mm-hmm. And that's both just kind of a good business practice. And it's also required by the SEC. So technically, you're not supposed to be on a deal just for raising money. And mm-hmm. so typically the way we look at it, it's like, hey, everyone's a general partner. They all have an active role on the deal, um, even if some have more than others. Um, and then everyone's going to raise money on the deal. And so, you know, if you have four people on your team, as an example, if each person can raise a million dollars comfortably, you're good to go. You're ready. You can do that deal. Right. Yeah. But what if each person can only raise, you know, 750000 Then you have, you know, a total of $3 million. Well, you have a million dollar deficit. And so, you know, you're going to need additional co-sponsors on that deal to be able to raise that money who also need to have active roles on the deal as well. So I don't know if that kind of makes sense, but typically that's kind of how you structure a deal is it's, it's both role dependent on what you need to accomplish the business plan yeah. and dependent on the capital raise both. So when you bring in the limited partners, is that when, um, you, you end up having to file with the SEC and stuff like that for uh, staying compliant around raising money and stuff like that? Or how does where does that all kind of play in as long as everyone stays GPs, you're kind of in the clear? Or? Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing that you need is a great attorney. So you yeah. have to have you have to have a real estate slash SEC attorney to do these deals. Yeah. And eat, there there are definitely some hard and fast rules to doing it. Um, but there's also a little bit of, you know, talk to your attorney because everyone does things slightly different. But the general practice is that, first of all, um, normally, you know, it's illegal to solicit investment opportunities to people like it, you yeah. have to have a license as a broker dealer to be able to do that. But there are exemptions through the SEC, which is what we use in syndication, you know, um, Reg D, specifically 506B and 506C that you can file for in order to not have to be a broker dealer and offer securities to investors. And so it's kind of two parts to it in order to do it correctly um, and check with your attorney, obviously, because I am not. But, you know, the first part is disclosing all the potential risks and stuff to your investors at the time that you're presenting the opportunity to them. And this comes in the form of a document called a PPM or private placement memorandum. In the private placement memorandum, Um, It will show basically kind of the high level investment summary, like what's the project, what are you doing? It will show the operating agreement, basically how is the deal structured? Um, Because it's a company, you know, you have partners coming into a company. How is that deal structured? Um, And then, as I mentioned, it has the risks associated with the deal. And so it's literally a 40 page document of every potential risk your attorney can think of that's disclosed to investors. And it can be things like, you know, real estate is inherently risky. It can be this building could just be blown away by a tornado. It could be, uh, 
you know, this general partnership team has never worked together before. They don't have a proven track record. Uh, it could be any number of things that you dream up. And so all those are disclosed in that PPM. Wow. And then if your investors, <clears throat> excuse me, if, if your investors review all that, you know, and are comfortable with the project, then they can choose to, um, you know, invest a, a portion of the equity needed into the deal. And they'll receive basically a share of the property per the operating agreement um, with the understanding of the business plan that's spec'd out in the investment summary and the associated risks that are spec'd out in the PPM. Creating that PPM. Talking about a lawyer creating that PPM almost put me to sleep. That sounds awful. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's a $10,000 document for a lawyer to create it. It's very expensive. I I would charge a lot more. That sounds horrid to put together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm glad I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> I know. You and me both. Hey, let me cut in here real quickly. If you are a starting or scaling real estate investor, I want to highly encourage you to take a look at our software, Ari. You can find it at www.areii.io. We take care of everything from analyzing properties to doing your bookkeeping to connecting you with lenders and helping you get the lowest rate possible for financing your deals. We do it all. We're there for you. We are your partner, your mentor, your assistant, right in your pocket. Take a look. Learn more. www.areii. It's pronounced Ari. Thanks. Now back to the episode. Let's go back to the the uh, made up example. So we got a hundred units. We got the ten million dollar asking price. Yeah. We have. Let's say there's there's four. There's four GPs and each one was able to raise the 750K. We need that mm -hmm. $4 million total. So we're short a million. And so we go and we pay a lawyer 10 grand to put together that awful document. Um, we're going to go and get a couple LPs and assuming we get them and all this stuff, they're bringing in a million dollars to that deal. When you're looking at the equity split for that, what is the typical split for the three or for the four GPs compared to the LPs? You know, we could just start, start there. Like if it was the 300 or the, the 3 million by the general partners, and then they're doing all the work. And then we got an unknown amount of LPs bringing a million. What's the equity split to the GPs and the LPs in that type of situation? Yeah, great question. So let me clarify one thing real quick in this in this Absolutely. example. So, so when you talk about like a GP bringing seven hundred fifty thousand, you're talking about basically, you know, a small portion of that as their investment in the deal, but the majority of it being LPs that are within their network investing through them as a general partner on the deal. So in other words, you are raising money from limited partners. Okay. And so if you had this example where you have a million dollars left over, it's not like, oh, I go find a couple LPs because you already found you already LPs. That's, where, that's your 750, right? Gotcha. Um, so the answer is you would have to then bring in a fifth or sixth GP to be able to complete that equity race, right? So then on the, on the, in this software world or whatever, we would call it the cap table uh, on that on who owns the the shares is it actually four separate entities that's made up of the person we know of as the gp plus all of their lps 
creating one LLC entity that's owning yeah. that 750K worth of equity or what's that? Yeah. And so if you look at, you know, one of the things you have to do both for your lender, for your attorney is create an organization chart um, of how the deal is structured. And so, you know, it's a little hard to do without like a whiteboard or something, but yeah. <laughs> if you imagine at the top, like a box, that's just X, Y, Z property, right? Whatever, that's your apartment complex. Um, and then that apartment complex is owned by an LLC. So it'd be like X, Y property, LLC. Okay. And so that is the LLC that contains both the limited partners and the general partners. So the operating agreement associated with that LLC would describe how equity or how profits are split between the limited and general partners. Typically, what we'll see is like maybe a 70, 30 or 80, 20 split with the higher amount going to the limited partners and okay. then the lower amount being awarded to the general partners for the sweat equity. But you will also then sometimes on a deal have what's called a preferred return, mm -hmm. which can be anywhere from, say, six to eight percent. It can be anything you want, but that's kind of a common range. And what that means is like if I have a seven percent preferred return, that means that if based on the money invested in the deal, if it only produces a 7% return, 100% of the profits go to the LPs first. And then anything above that is split via the 70, 30 or 80, 20 split. And so it's a protection mechanism for investors in the event that the deal doesn't perform as expected. Right. Yeah. Um, and so that's typically how it's split amongst LPs and GPs. Then you'll typically have another entity off to the side of the one I mentioned, which is XYZ Management Property LLC. And that is the entity and its associated operating agreement that describes how the general partnership team is working together, what their particular roles are, and how amongst that 20 or 30% that's awarded to the GP side, how that will be split amongst those few partners. Um, so I don't know if that kind of answers the question, but that's, yeah. that's high level how it works. No, that's good. That's some good clarification. Um, okay, cool. So then when we back to the uh, question, couple, couple questions ago, um, when you're done, you've, you've, you've closed an apartment and it's been like six months or whatever, and you're looking and you're like, okay, we're ready to do our next deal. Yeah. Does it start when you found a property or do you start putting together all this before you even identify a potential property? Yeah. So when it comes to the, the legal documents, the lending, the property management, the business plan, those are all very property specific items. Yeah. And so those you would not start putting together at least until you have a signed LOI on the property. Okay. And probably not until you have a signed contract on the property and know that, hey, I'm going to buy this. However, there are other pieces to this equation that you can put it together ahead of time. Um, so, for example, like, you know, one of our one of our markets is Lubbock, Texas. OK, we have several markets that we look at both here in Dallas and other tertiary markets. But let's say I'm going to buy a deal in Lubbock. Then, you know, I'm going to start looking for the team members who I need to, generally speaking, do a deal in Lubbock. So I'm going to look for a property management company there. I'm going to look for a lender that's familiar with that area and 
or a broker who knows lenders that are familiar with that area and willing to lend on projects there. You know, I may be looking for, you know, contractors. Um, and then also, you know, I mentioned co-GPs or other general partners. I'm going to look for general partners that are interested in deals in that market, right? Because like, for example, if you came to me, you know, most of our investments or rather all of them are in Texas and Oklahoma. Those are where our markets are. So if you come to me and say, hey, I want you to be a general partner on a deal in Wyoming, I have nothing against Wyoming, but I don't know Wyoming as an investment market. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not going to pull investors into that market personally. Um, and so I would not be a good fit for that. So you got to find general partners or co-GPs who are interested in similar markets and properties that you are. Um, and so those are pieces of the puzzle that you can construct ahead of time. Interesting. Okay, cool. That that helps. Awesome. Uh, this was fun. I'm trying to think if I got any more questions around syndications. Is there anything else that we should have talked about in regards to like getting started in syndications? You know, maybe this, maybe there's a new investor um, or not a new investor, an investor who's done some, some single family flips, some rental properties, stuff like that. And they're looking to move up into that next space and they want to be a GP um, in a syndicated deal on, on some, on a smaller, you know, maybe million dollar deal, $2 million deal, something like that. Where do they start? Yeah, absolutely. So let me divide this up into kind of two pieces here. I'll talk yeah. about the, the general partnership side of where to get started and the limited partnership side. So, okay. um, you know, the general partnership side, everyone has different opinions about how to do it. I was in Paula and I, my wife, we were in very similar situation to what you're describing that we had successful experience as single family investors, but wanted to move up into large scale multifamily. And so our personal experience is that, you know, we saw people who would say, well, just go figure it out on your own, like you do a single family. And we had other people that said, well, you need to go join a mentorship program or an educational program mm. to move up into multifamily. And so because the latter was a very expensive option, we decided to try to just kind of head out and kind of carve our own way. And we could not get a deal done. Like we ran into roadblock after roadblock. The biggest just being we couldn't find a deal where numbers made sense. Hmm. And so ultimately we wound up joining a mentorship program, deciding that was a good fit for us. And um, it was a year long program that consisted both of like a course and, you know, kind of a hold your hand guidance system through getting your first deal done. And so we did that. Um, the program we went through is called Michael Blanc's. There's also a million other ones out there. And ironically, we're actually now both coaches in his program. So it's cool that, you know, we've been able to sort of go full circle. And now we work with other students who are new. Um, so those are the two routes that I see. I'm more familiar with the mentorship route just because that's what worked for me and what was successful. Um, but what I would say is if you want to try to kind of go out and figure things on your own, you know, go to your local RIA or go to the markets that you're interested in investing in and find a multifamily syndicator who's always doing already doing deals there and figure out where you can add value. And most of the time, the biggest way people add value when they're newer is by bringing capital or their investor network to the deal um, for for, you know, filling up the equity on it. Gotcha. So, so that's kind of the GP side. Was it because you joined the group that doors opened up and, and you started finding deals that made sense? 
And it's because so many people in the, you know, community try to blockade really good deals or they snag them really fast or, it, you know, is it because of that? That's why you weren't finding any success or. Yeah, I think else? there's a, there's definitely there's several things. It's not just one thing. Um, you know, I often have students that I work with now who ask me like, well, they'll say like, oh, there's no good deals out there. Mm-hmm. So I, I, the way I look at the funnel, my deal funnel, it's a hundred to one ratio. You have to yeah. look at and analyze a hundred deals to find one. And, you know, I can analyze a single family deal in probably about two minutes. It's not that, not that complex, right? Yeah. Um, if you have a good Excel calculator. I'm, I think pretty fast at multifamily and it probably takes me 20 to 30 minutes to do a first pass. So all that to say a hundred deals is a lot to look at. Yeah. Um, and so it's discouraging when you look at deal after deal and you're not able to find it. But the question I always ask back to the students is like, if I handed you a good deal today, would you know it? Like, do you understand how to do the analysis well enough? Do you understand all the value add strategies that you could put together a viable business plan, model it in the Excel spreadsheet and show, hey, this is a good deal? Because most of the time people say, well, there's no good deals. And it's true. It's very hard to find good deals. But at the same time, it's also true that even if they had one, they probably wouldn't be able to recognize it. And so being a part of a mentorship program hopefully helps to um really polish your analysis skills to where you're able to identify those deals, I would say. Um, And then I think perhaps even more importantly, it's about proximity, right? Yeah. And so, I mean, everyone in real estate's heard this, but like, if you hang out with people who, um, what's something maybe you don't want to do, do drugs all the time, right? You're probably going to wind up being a drug addict, right? Yeah. If you hang out with an average person who, you know, they go to work for 40 hours a week, and, you know, maybe play with their kids, watch football on the weekends. That's who you're going to become. And if you go hang out with multifamily investors all the time, that's who you're going to become. And so joining one of these networks, it basically not forces you, but allows you to easily, you know, put yourself in that environment all the time to where, you know, your mindset, um, you know, a lot of your focus, a lot of your identity starts to be wrapped around in that to where you can then go get a deal, if that makes sense. Yeah, uh, because it's who you're hanging out with. It's who you have proximity to. Okay, I like that. Um, cool. Let's move on to the last couple questions here. Uh, first, is there any last tips for starting or scaling real estate investors that you want to make certain they know about? Yeah. So, um, also the starting, um, it's really simple. And like you know, I never tell someone to go do a bad deal, but just like especially like in the single family world, just go do a deal. Yeah. So, you know, you might look at the fourplex deal that we did and be like, dude, you were wrong. Like you analyzed it. You thought, Hey, I'm going to make 300 a month and you were losing 200 a month. But if I hadn't done that deal, I would have never gone on to do any other deals. Right. Um, And so don't do a bad deal. Do your best to find a good one, work hard at finding one, but like just pull the trigger and buy something. And remember that real estate is a game of time. And so if you buy something and it's sustainable and you can hold it for, you know, five years, seven years, 10 years, like you're not going to lose in the world of real estate because it just by nature of what it is goes up in value over time. Um, And so that's the first thing is jump in and get started. When it comes to scaling, 
I think there's so many things I could say um, because, I mean, we're still in the process of scaling our business in my mind, but I think a lot of it is one, it becomes about a team. You really have to hone in on like, what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? Um, so that's one big thing. And then surrounding your people with, or surrounding yourself with people who fill in those weaknesses. Um, and it becomes about your systems, your processes, basically your organization around your business. Yeah. Um, in other words, treating it like a business instead of just a one-off hobby where you do everything in the business. Um, I was listening to one of those like Facebook, Instagram type real things the other day where they go up and ask people who made a lot of money, like, you know, how did you scale? How did you grow your business? And this particular guy's answer was, you know, I delegate everything. And even if the person I'm delegating to does 70% as good a job as I do, I still will let them do it because that's the only way I can move on to the next project. And the project just has to work at that level of operation, you know? Um, and so I think that's really insightful that like, it's easy for me to be like, well, I could do this better if I just did it myself. But until you get someone in place that you can delegate two different tasks, you're not going to build a scale. Yeah. I like that a lot. Uh, where, um, where can people find out more about you? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, my wife and I, our syndication company is called Apogee Capital. Um, I'm sure we can drop the website link in the notes. Um, it's yeah. A-P-O-G-E-E-M-F-C, like multifamilycapital.com. Um, we buy large apartment deals in Texas and Oklahoma. That's what we do. And we're actually going to be launching uh, a masterclass here in about a month. Nice. And it's going to be oriented towards limited partners, but it's basically everything you need to go to go kind of like, you know, they have the couch to 5k programs. This is the couch to limited partner in a deal program. And so nice. you're going to learn about like, how do you look at deals? How do you vet operators? How do you vet deals as a limited partner? Um, it's free. And so there's no cost to it, you know? Um, but the idea is that, you know, today in this market, we're in a little bit different time where a lot of limited partners are getting bit because the economy isn't continuing to go up. It's gone down a little bit. Mm -hmm. And while that means there's tremendous opportunity, it also means that many operators who have not been operating well are being exposed. And so it's more important than ever now to know how to vet deals, how to vet operators. And so that's an opportunity that depending exactly when our show gets released, will probably yeah. be available to people to take advantage of. That, that's a whole episode in itself, vetting operators, I'm sure. Um, and then lastly, is there anything that I should have asked you that I didn't think about, forgot about that you think is important to talk about? Man, that's tough. Cause obviously there's a million things to talk <laughs> about when it comes to investing. Um, I think that, you know, just kind of the thing we touched on earlier, if you're looking in the multifamily world about the different roles and stuff is just understanding, really taking the time to clarify, like, what are your goals in life? And then which one of these investing opportunities fit you? So like, you know, for example, you or I, like, I know we both have very entrepreneurial type spirits. We like to be actively involved. We don't mind the challenges that come with deals. But what I've noticed is a lot of our investors on our deals, they're professionals that generally like they enjoy their jobs. They're an engineer or a doctor or a consultant or whatever. They like what they do and they want to have their weekends to spend with their family and do hobbies that excite them and stuff. And so being an active investor is just not the right choice for them, but being a passive investor is. And so I think the one thing I would probably leave is just 
take time to think about what is your goals, not just in real estate, but in life, and then choose the route in real estate that best matches that. Yeah, I like that a lot. Jonathan, this was a great episode. Thank you so much for being on here today. Um, this was really good. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Chris. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. All right. Thanks for tuning in to the Top Investor Podcast. If you are a real estate investor, we want to connect with you. Like our favorite quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson says, every man I meet is my superior in some way, and in that I learn from him. We believe we can learn something from everyone, so even if you are just starting out on your real estate investing journey, head over to the link in the description to connect with us, and we would love to hop on a call with you. Also, be sure to subscribe to the show and follow us on the socials at Top Investor Pod. While you're at it, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review so we can help more people become top investors. Until next time, this is Chris Marshall signing off. Go out and become a top investor. See you around.